Some say that it's an orientation, that people are born this way. Others that it's against nature and a choice. That's the same-sex question, the most divisive issue of our day and a clash of cultures. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you uh, this morning and to have had an opportunity to worship with you. Uh, just an amazing time that we've had already here uh, today. Um, you know, there's so many people who don't uh, really uh, care that much what the Bible says about something. Um, they don't uh, care what it says about the same sex question. They don't, in fact, care about what it says about anything. And I want to say as respectfully as I can that my concern in this series, our concern as a church in this series is is not what, what they think about this same-sex question. Um, we're not really that concerned with what people outside of, of the believing of the authority of God's word are thinking about all of this or where they're looking for their answers. But um, we're really concerned with those of us who are kind of in the room and those who would be watching by a video and those who are listening to the podcast um, we're concerned with those because at the very least, if you're here or you're taking the time to listen or watch uh, this message, then you have at least some, at a very minimum le- level, some respect for God's word, and you have some desire to hear what it says. There's a, at least a, an inkling inside of you that maybe God, the creator, actually has an answer for this very pressing cultural question, but also this intensely personal question that's affecting a lot of lives. And so um, you want answers and you believe that perhaps God in his word has given us uh, those answers. And so, so I'm, I'm going to go with that. If that's all right, I'm, I'm going to go with the idea that you're actually looking for some answers here today. And we're going to explore in today's message, a number of scripture passages uh, where God has something to say specifically about the same sex question, um, answering the big question that really is hanging over uh, the air over this room right now. Um, Last week, we kind of set the table for all of this, but the big question really is, um, is same-sex attraction and activity sinful or not? Is that the question? Is that the one you're you're wondering about? Is same-sex activity or attraction sinful or not? That's really what we're going to go after uh, today. So uh, probably be a great idea if we just paused and prayed for a moment and then we'll, uh, then we'll get into this. Uh, Father, we do, um, as we often pray, we have a desperate need to hear from you again. And uh, we're in the midst of some complex questions. And uh, Father, there seem to be so many options uh, in front of us, uh, so many competing voices. Uh, to attract our attention and get us to believe and act. And so, God, we need you to speak to us uh, through your word right now. But, Father, we understand um, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of bones and marrow. 
We know that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so, God, we understand that this isn't just an academic pursuit in understanding what an ancient text says. But, Father, this is your Holy Spirit bringing conviction to our lives. Show us what we need to believe. Help us to understand and to have the strength of will to apply these truths to our lives. Father, all of this through the power of your Holy Spirit in us. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's take a look. This is what we're going after today. The Bible and the same-sex question. Uh, in the last message, we uh, used a phrase. I used a phrase, um, having a high view of Scripture. And what I mean by that is that we actually find our authority uh, in the word of God and that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, and and uh, further, that we need to, because of that, because it's inspired by God, because it's a special text, because we find our authority in the word of God, um, then we need to interpret it correctly. Amen. Uh, there is a proper way to read the scriptures. We need to do that, read the scriptures, interpret the scriptures, study the scriptures in a way that is faithful uh, to the intent that God has, the original meaning of what the Bible is saying to us. Now, here's why, and this is the way it kind of worked up until maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, because we have seen such rapid change in our culture in the last decade. But before that time, it almost, almost wasn't necessary to preach or teach on matters of same-sex attraction um, and activity because there was kind of a very distinct line between those who are in the church and we would believe that uh, homosexuality was a sin uh, based on the scriptures and so we could do a quick pass of the six relevant scripture passages that speak to that and we could all affirm in the in the bible believing christ honoring church that that was sinful and the world outside of the church believed, some of them would have believed the way we did, but a lot of them would have believed differently than that. But that was the line. And so a quick pass of the, of the passages that related to this, that was fine. That worked then. But that doesn't actually work now. And the reason that doesn't work anymore is because the culture clash that we're talking about isn't so much the clash between the church and those who are not in the church, but the clash increasingly is within the church. And so we have to have a good understanding about how we understand, interpret, read the Bible, how we study it and what principles we draw out of it because, because the discussion is happening inside of the church with those who would also claim to have the phrase a high view of scripture and so there are those i mean this is the thing that a lot of us don't understand but if you're reading blogs if you're checking out what uh, what christian bo christian books are coming out right now about this question then you understand that there are many who are and this is an important word affirming of same-sex uh, activity, marriage, relationships, whatever word you want to put in there, they're affirming of the whole thing and yet claiming to have a high view of Scripture. In other words, they would say, you can be a good Christ follower, loving God and loving the Bible, and yet affirm these kinds of relationships uh, between same-sex couples. 
Now, to get there, you have to reinterpret some things. You have to, you have to go to the Bible, to the six passages, and you have to study those out again and come to a different conclusion than the one that we've been coming to for more than 2,000 years. And um, you have to say to the church, the way you've been interpreting this is wrong. That you've been wrong about this from the beginning. I know, and this is what happens, I know you think you know what those verses mean, but they don't mean that anymore. Okay, We've been interpreting those wrong. And so that's, that's the backdrop. It's, it's less about addressing the culture out there and more about addressing the culture that might be right here inside of this church, but certainly in the broad spectrum of the evangelical church, that is what we're dealing with. And when I think about a passage like, and I don't have this verse up on the screen, but a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, 5, which is a context of of church discipline on someone who is guilty of sexual sin. Okay, that's the context of that verse. In, in, In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, it says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? And Paul's telling the church, you need to discipline this guy. He's doing something that's inappropriate. And Paul's saying, it's not really about judging what's going going on out there in the world, but we need to be, he goes on in the verse to say, but we need to be judging inside the church. And this is a prime example of that, where we're going to be spending some time using the scriptures to kind of discern, can we be affirming of same-sex relationships and activity? Or do we still believe, more traditionally, that it's a sinful choice and against God's moral code. All right, so let's, before we go any further then, I've talked a lot about interpreting the Bible and how we read the Bible. So let's just do a little quick primer, if you will, on how to study the Bible. Does that make sense? Interpreting the Bible correctly. You want to make sure that when you're reading the Bible, you're reading it correctly. All right? So there's a right and wrong way here. Uh, We don't really think about the different ways that we read uh, different kinds of literature. But I, I just want you to know that every time you're reading something, you're interpreting it. We're not just reading something without also discerning. Interpretation is just what's the meaning of of this. And so when it comes down to interpreting the Bible, um, We're making interpretive decisions every time we read the Bible, and it's based on several things. If we're going to do it correctly and faithful to the text, there are several things that are important. First of all, we want to read the Bible in light of the historical, grammatical, and literary considerations. Okay, these are three very important words. And I don't have time to kind of dive into all of this. There's whole books that are written on this topic. We're going to put a couple of Uh, those uh, books in our reference section on the When Cultures Clash uh, website. You're going to be able to access those there if you want to go a little more deeply into all of this. But this is literally like five minutes to say what what I learned in in a whole semester um, in my undergrad degree, okay? So uh, historical, grammatical, literary considerations. That is to say, whatever book we're reading in the Bible has a historical context that it happened in. There was a time and there was a place and there are factors about that history, about that time and place that influenced the writing. Does that make sense? Okay, history. 
considerations. Then there are grammatical considerations. We know, uh, for example, the New Testament is written in Greek, that there are some Aramaic portions. We know that in the Old Testament, it's primarily written in Hebrew, the vast majority of it. Um, Certain words are chosen, words matter, uh, certain grammatical constructions and sentence structure, and all of that matters in the discerning of what exactly is going on. All of those things that you learned in high school English class that horrified you so much are actually an important part of what I, I do every week in seeking to understand the scriptures and then explain them to you. So grammar matters. And then there are literary considerations. And uh, to say literary considerations is really just to say that there are particular genres, literary genres, or types of literature that are in play in the scripture. So we know that the Bible is one book, but it is actually a compilation of 66 books. And um, different books are different literary genres or literary types. And even within certain books, there are different genres or types in play. For example, in the Bible, there is short story. There is parable, there's allegory, there's historical narrative, there's letters and apocalyptic literature and poetry and song, and there are sermons. And that's just a sampling of all the different kinds of literature that you find in the Bible. Now, you read each of those kinds of literature differently, and it's important that you do read them differently. Now, let me give you a more contemporary example about this, just to illustrate the fact that we read different things in different ways. For example, if, you, um, if you're reading news, you're, you go to the National Post, whether um, if you're old school and you still, how many people still get a print newspaper to their door or read that? That's wonderful for the 12 of you that still do that. Um, Uh, But most of us are probably accessing our news. If we're not watching it on TV or listening on the radio, we're accessing it online and you get an an article in front of you and you're reading about something. It's called news for a reason. It's uh, fresh. It's happened in the last you know, few minutes or hours. It's happened recently within a day. It's a factual, at least you hope it is. Um, And you're reading it um, to find out what's actually happened. Okay. That's if you're reading like the national post. Now, that's a lot different, and the way you read and interpret that is a lot different than if you read, for example, uh, John Donne's poem, um, No Man is an Island, correct? And and, uh, if you read, do people read poetry? The poetry readers here? Okay, the same 12 people that read the newspaper. That's fantastic. Um, Like, I mean, the thing with poetry is you're not reading it literally you're not looking for facts like you would in the national post article you you read it very differently in fact you read it and except for the few people that put their hands up you don't even understand what it says i mean that was my whole high school english career was i have no idea what this means it is such a shock that i spend my time and my career my whole job thing is about explaining literature to people my high school english teachers would be incredulous at this that i actually do this and it, because, because poetry needs to be read differently than news. And then, of course, my third example is amazing. Um, um, comic strips. Um, how, many, how many? Just take a second and read that. Yeah, it's funny, right? It's funny. How many Calvin and Hobbes fans? Yeah, that, right? 
and, and I, you read comic strips different. There is a message that he's delivering. It's not poetic. It's not factual, but there is something being communicated through humor. And I wish Calvin and Hobbes were still uh, being published today. So uh, interpreting the Bible correctly, there are historical there are uh, grammatical and there are literary considerations. And those are the rules that we follow. At least those are the first set of rules that we follow when in reading the Bible. Also, um, we have author's intent in writing. In other words, this is so important. What did the author intend? What was his purpose in writing? And what did the original readers understand? The plainest meaning of what they were reading in the, in, in the, um, in the book that they had in, in front of them. And if you don't lock this in first, then all kinds of wrong interpretations can result. This is the Bible study, and I remember this Bible study. We try to avoid this as much as we can, but when I was first a believer in the church that I was first in, I can remember going to Bible studies where the whole thing was that the leader would just get a passage open and would just read it and, and then go around the circle and say, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? And everybody would just share their opinion about what it meant to them. And without trying to be rude about it, I don't care what you think of the Bible. I don't. I care what Paul was intending to write to the Galatian believers and what the Galatian believers read and understood about what Paul intended. That's what I care about. And that's harder work. It takes more study. You have to be more diligent in your understanding of the texts, but it isn't just willy nilly. I can go anywhere in the scripture and just pull something out and say, that means this to me. Um, that's dangerous. Going after author's intent in writing. And then uh, thirdly, this a context determines meaning. And by context, I mean the original context. You can write this down. It's a great little phrase. Scripture interprets scripture. Okay. Scripture interprets scripture. If you're stuck with something, the best way to find out what that verse means is to examine it in light of the greater context of the Bible. So we look at one verse in light of other verses, specifically even, or at least initially the verses that are around that verse. We studied in light of the book that it's found in. We studied in light of uh, the, the author. So if there's something I'm stuck on in the book of Galatians, I want to look at other stuff that Paul has written in his other letters to see how I can shed some light on that verse in Galatians that I might be stuck on. And then I might look at the whole body of the New Testament or the Old Testament. And how does this fit in with the overall flow of those two testaments? And then, of course, with the entirety of Scripture. And by the way, you're going to see all of this illustrated in the next section of, of today's lesson. We're going to see exactly how this uh, plays out that scripture interprets scripture and the full context of the Bible is what we use to bring meaning to the rest of scripture. Because it's so dangerous to take a verse out of its context and just to make it mean whatever we want to make it mean, scripture interprets scripture. And much false teaching is actually built on the whole idea that I can just take a verse out and make it mean whatever I mean. Now, let me give you an example of this that I saw many, many years ago that to me was just a head scratcher. Um, I'm not going to tell you exactly where I'm finding this yet, but I want to read a verse for you that I saw in a Christmas card. So, you know, these Christmas cards you pick up in the Christian bookstore and um, 
So nice picture of, you know, the manger scene on the, on the front side. And then inside you have that uh, cheesy verse that somebody's written about Christmas. And then just on the inside flap at the Christian bookstore ones, there's always a scripture verse on the inside, right? Just at the bottom in small. Have I got that right? That's exactly what they look like, right? Here's, here is the verse on this Christmas card that I saw. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Well, clearly that's a Christmas verse because the word merry is there and presents. And that's Christmas. It's presents and it's, and it's merry Christmas. That's clearly a Christmas verse. Perfect to use in this Christmas card. The context is Revelation chapter 11. Not Christmas. In fact, what they were making Mary about in Revelation 11 was that God had sent his two prophets and they had murdered them and laid them out in the street for everyone to see. And so they were pretty happy that God was no longer speaking to them. So they're all having parties and exchanging gifts. Isn't this great? We killed those two guys. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. That is a very quick primer on biblical interpretation, okay? If you want to study more, there's more on our resource page. Okay, let's apply that now. Examining the biblical texts that pertain to the same-sex question because a reinterpretation of the Bible is currently in vogue. That's what's happening in the church. And this isn't new. I don't want anyone to think that, oh, here we are in the 21st century and this is such a new phenomenon that people are reinterpreting the Bible. This is, just say, it's not new. This is not new. Uh, this was going on at the very beginning. You can read through Paul's letters and you can see how people very shortly after the resurrection of Jesus and the founding of the church were already distorting and twisting the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles. Councils like the Council of Nicaea were convened precisely because there was errant teaching in the church. So this is not uncommon. Uh, this is not anything new. We've been dealing with this kind of thing for 2,000 years. Now, so you understand, I don't normally do this, but in, in, in kind of a regular preaching, I wouldn't necessarily share, hey, this is what other people believe. I just believe that the best thing for us to do is get the word of God open and see what we believe and teach that. But for the purposes of this, I want to... I want to make point and counterpoint to what those, please listen very carefully because you could, you could sound bite out things from this sermon that make it sound like I believe something I don't believe or that we believe something we don't believe. So this is going to be point and counterpoint. The point being those who are affirming of same sex relationships, same sex activity. Okay. Those who are affirming of that, but who have a high view of scripture versus what we're going to see the Bible really teaches, okay? Point and counterpoint throughout uh, all of this. So let's, um, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, base most of what I say on the point side of things, those who are affirming on this book, God and the Gay Christian, a young man by the name of Matthew Vines, he uh, put a, um, he's a Harvard student, he put a, um, a video online a couple of years ago that went viral and really he has become uh, the face of those who would say that they have a high view of scripture. They love the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in a relationship with him. 
um, but they um, are affirming of same-sex activity and same-sex marriage. And so that would be um, Matthew Vine. And so a lot of what we're saying, all of our elders read this, we discussed this together, and um, so he's going to be making the points for us that we are going to counterpoint. So first in Genesis 19. Now Genesis 19 is the first mention really of any kind of same-sex activity. This is the story of Lot, Abraham's nephew, and um, he's living in the city of Sodom, and um, some angel visitors come. These are angelic beings. They come and they visit his home. And the men of the town who um, uh, were really sinful men uh, start banging on the door and say, uh, send those guys out here, send those men out here so that we might, and Genesis 19, so gentle in its language says, so that we might know them. Now, this isn't no in the sense of they just wanted to, you know, get drinks together and find out what's, you know, what's going on in each other's lives. This is a euphemism for they wanted to have gay sex with them. Okay, that's, that's what's going on in the passage. Now, Matthew Vines would say that the emphasis in the passage is not on same-sex act, sexual activity, that it's not on that at all, but on a variety of other excesses that the people of Sodom were given to and that the passage really is about gang rape and and not specifically about consensual monogamous committed same-sex relationship so that so he's dismissing it saying this isn't what we're talking about now I will concede and most scholars will concede that the primary emphasis of Genesis 19 is not the same sex sexual activity, but it is indeed the excess and the gang rape. But if you cross reference Jude chapter 17, you're going to, or Jude, Jude verse 17, you're going to find that sexual immorality is covered in there in Jude's commentary on, on Genesis 19. And that at least in part, if it's not the main part, at least in part what Genesis 19 is condemning is that there was same-sex sexual activity actually going on. All right, it's part of it. It's not the whole thing. And I think that's Jude 7, not 17. Genesis, so that's Genesis 19. All right, we get a start on it. We understand that it's at least in part condemned as being inappropriate. Secondly, I'm going to take these next two together. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. So Le- Leviticus 18, 22, and then 20, 13. And these are both part of what we would call the Old Testament holiness code. Confession time right now. You've read through the Bible, but the hardest book you had to read through was Leviticus. True or false? And, and it's absolutely true. It's just hard because you're going through just all these provisions of what it meant to be a good Yahweh worshiping Jew at the time. And so you have all this holiness code and what... Um, Moses writes from the Lord in Leviticus 18 and 20 is part of that code. Moses writes, 18:22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Clear, correct? That seems clear to me. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. He's speaking to men, obviously. It's an abomination. And then Um, 2013 just adds this. It kind of restates the point, but then adds this. They shall surely be put to to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, this verse has been used by some well-meaning. The word I want to use is not appropriate right now. Um, Bible, so-called Bible-believing people to incite hatred and violence against people who have same-sex attraction. And 
inappropriately so, in the strongest terms, let me say how much we condemn that, and that that is an indication that a person does not truly have Jesus Christ in their life. We're not talking about any kind of violence or hatred of those who would be struggling with these issues or or, uh, facing this question. And I'm grateful, because here's the answer to this, I'm grateful that the punitive aspects of the Old Testament holiness code are no longer in effect today. Okay? Jesus Christ said when he was here on earth, this is what he said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And the parts that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ going to the cross and giving his life, the parts that were fulfilled were the punitive aspects of the law. He shed his blood for us, did he not? He did. So the punitive aspects of the law are fulfilled and the ceremonial aspects, there's no longer a need for the sacrificial system, no longer a need for a temple because we are the temple of God now, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so the ceremonial aspects, the feasts, the festivals, the sacrificial system, all of that no longer necessary, fulfilled in Christ. But listen, the holiness code was rooted in the very character of who God is. And so you can't erase the principle behind the moral code because it's rooted in the character of God. And so we eliminate the sense of of punishment that's here in 2013, but the sense that we, we should not lie. If we're men, we should not lie with a man as we would with a woman, that's still enforced because that's rooted in the character of God. That's part of who he is that's been passed down to us. And so what Vine says about this is that these verses are the improper ordering of gender roles. That this isn't about same-sex interaction sexually, but this is about the roles that are played out in the sexual relationship. And so what he's saying is that this is a prohibition against males ever taking the passive role in the sexual relationship. Now, do you seem a little confused by that? Because it's so convoluted that there's nothing in the text that heads us down that road at all. This isn't about gender roles or the male taking on the passive role. There's no justification for that in the text whatsoever. Richard Hayes, who wrote a book called Gay and Christian, said this, the holiness code explicitly prohibits male homosexual intercourse. That's the whole thing. It's as simple as that. And a plain reading of the Bible, part of our interpretive method, a plain reading of the Bible leads us to that. All right. Ready for Romans 1? Romans 1, 26 and 27 is, as everyone recognizes, whether you're on one side of the issue or the other, um, however you're answering the question, everyone recognizes that this is the clearest and most direct teaching on the same-sex question. Um, Vines says that the key phrase here, the NIV uses the, um, the phrase shameful lust, and he picks up on that word lust. Um, but let me read the whole thing from the ESV where the phrase is dishonorable passions. So Romans 1, 26 and 27, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women. This is the first time we're seeing that, that this applies to women in same-sex 
relationships as well as men. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That's an important phrase. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now for vines, for vines, this passage is about lust. He picks up on that phrase. It's about lust and not love. You see, for vines, what's really important and those who would argue similarly to him He argues that same-sex relationships are fine because the Bible doesn't specifically address loving, monogamous, committed, marital, same-sex relationships. Now, if same-sex couples have these things, he would argue, if they have this love for one another, if they're committed to one another, so it's monogamous, if it's in a marital situation... If they're committed, then Romans 1 doesn't apply to them. Because Romans 1, according to Vines, is lust. And he would say so because he believes that Paul, who's writing Romans 1, he has no concept of sexual orientation or gender identity that in first century uh, Rome, Roman Empire, they didn't have any concept of any of this. And so what Vines is doing is he's changing the meaning of contrary to nature. That's the other key phrase we saw in the verses. He changes it away from anything sexual and again references it more to gender identity. Roles that we play in relationships. Now, if you examine this in the fuller context of Romans chapter 1, it's about idolatry. It's anything that we put in the place of the worship of of our God. It's about anything disrupting the design that God has made. Now, this is so important because now we're getting more to what we believe here. Okay. The design that God made is complementary. Okay. Everything that God made complements something else. Everything Okay, complementarian. This is a very important word. So, this is about, Romans 1 is about surrendering to passions. It is about lust. But in doing so, these folks that are giving in specifically to same-sex passions are violating a design that God has made that is supposed to be not the same, but complementary. We're going to say more about that in a few moments, but you have to tuck that away inside of you right now. And when Paul says that it's against nature, it's unnatural. It's unnatural because it violates the complementary nature of how God made the creation of his original intention for the creation. And so much more could be said there. These are verses from Romans, after all. So much more could be said over these verses, but... For the, for the sake of time, which is rapidly running away from me, uh, we're going to move on. Both 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, again, we'll take these two verses together. They essentially say the same thing. Let me read uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. That's a broad term for all sexual immorality 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, very similar. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. That is to say that the law of God is really there to point out our sin. And once you become obedient to Christ and you give your heart to him, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you and your sin is no longer an issue between you and God. That's what Paul is saying here. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, same term as as 1 Corinthians 6, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's a comprehensive, take those two lists together, throw in the fact that Paul said in anything else, by the way, that's against what God has said, and you have a comprehensive list of sins. Now, for vines, what he's talking about now, men who practice homosexuality, as it's articulated in these two verses, for vines, this is always exploitive homosexual activities. That it's not consensual in any way. But again, Paul's using the best word that's available at the time to describe homosexual activity, uh, same-sex sexual activity. And uh, there's no indication anywhere in the text, anywhere in the Bible whatsoever, that, is, that this is specifically referring to any kind of an exploitive relationship. There's no reason to believe that this isn't consensual. That this, this isn't simply a reference to any kind of same-sex sexual activity. I mean, to me, this is clear. And I, and I love... For, for Matthew Vines to get where he gets, he has to grab a lot of other data from other places. And he has to come up with an interpretation that fits with where he's at and the conclusion he's trying to reach for. But the reality is, and I love what James McDonald has been saying lately. This is a drum he's been pounding pretty hard lately in his teaching. But, but the message of the Bible is in the Bible. Okay? The message of the Bible is in the Bible. We don't need a lot of other source material to tell us what's here. God has given us something that is sufficient in all matters of faith and practice for us. And so a plain reading of the text here tells us a truth, as hard as it is for some in this room uh, to accept um, that same-sex attraction um, is sin. That it violates, that based on these six texts that we looked at, it violates God's holiness code. That it is sin, but it's included in a list with a lot of other sins. And the challenge we've probably had is that we've just elevated this one so high. And we've had to. Imagine, we're doing four weeks to understand what we believe about one sin issue. So I get that this is difficult. I get that there's a challenge here for all of us. So here's my overarching critique of Matthew Vine's argument. He believes that since the Bible does not address the situation that we're facing today, according to his interpretation, committed, monogamous, loving, same-sex relationships, therefore God permits it. Because he didn't specifically mention it, therefore God permits it. We would call this an argument from silence. 
because the Bible doesn't specifically mention this, therefore um, it's okay. I mean, one could use the same argument for pornography since pornography is not actually mentioned in the Bible. So go ahead and watch it. Okay, don't isolate that soundbite, okay? (laughs) See where you can get in trouble? Context, context. Always uh, the context. And so he, he's arguing um, this argument from silence that's never an acceptable means of determining meaning and application. And further, if you read the book, he allows his emotion to really govern where he goes in his interpretations. Because in essence, what he's saying, he's driven by the pragmatics of his experience. So essentially, what he says is this. And I want to read this so you capture it. This is essentially what Matthew Vines would say. Because some people are gay, and because a lot of those gay people are struggling deeply with their identity, and because it's really hurtful, harmful toward them, therefore God must be okay with them because God loves people. And so we've been reading the Bible wrong for 2,000 years. We need to change the reading of the Bible to suit what's happening now so people will no longer, so, so young gay men will no longer take their lives, so people will no longer struggle with identity issues. We need to simply be affirming. Okay, that's a summary of what Matthew Vines is saying, but none of that is consistent with a proper interpretation of the scripture and respectfully to Matthew Vines and others who would believe similarly um, if that's the interpretation you're coming to, you don't have a high view of Scripture. You don't. You may say you do, but you're violating the very essence of it by following a wrong methodology to come to your conclusions. All right? That's a zoom in on the six passages. And that's an important way to study. But again, we want to study the six passages in light of the greater context of the Scripture. And so, really with the time we have left, let me just say this. Um, When we zoom out, we see the bigger picture in three other passages. Let's just start with Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2. Pretty easy to find in your Bibles. Genesis 1 and 2. Let me read a few verses here. Uh, 26 and and 27, uh, 28 of chapter 1. Uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. You can see the intention from the beginning. He switches from singular to plural. His intention from the beginning is to create two. Okay, they're going to have dominion. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over uh, the earth. And then over to chapter 2, uh, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Breathed. Now he's going into more specifics how he did it. Chapter 1 is kind of a summary of the whole thing. Formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. And then over to verse um, 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. That will make him a helper fit for him. We're going to come back to this um, next week. Right? Because this is important in terms of how do I handle same-sex attraction if I have that and I want to overcome that in my life. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to man to see what he would call them. Man gave them all names, verse 21. Then um, 
he, because he couldn't find a helper that was suitable for him, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now from the beginning, back to that word, complementary. Okay. From the beginning, we have order in the way that God created male and female uh, to come together. And God saw everything that he had made in creating, in creating days one through three, in filling the creation days uh, four, five, and six in the perfect order of that. uh, God created something awesome for us that is perfectly in the creation complementing everything else. Now, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. By the way, God looked at all of that and, and uh, he saw that it was very, no, he didn't see it was good. At the very end of it all, he said it was, yeah, it was very good. And uh, that's perfect creation, perfectly complementing one another, male and female complimenting. Now in Ephesians chapter five, what we have here is this extended teaching by Paul on marriage, probably the most extensive teaching we have on Christian marriage. It starts in verse, really in verse 21, talking about mutual submission, talks about wives in uh, verse 22, husbands in verse 25. And then he says this, um, again, he reiterate, reiterates in verse 31 of the Genesis passage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the overall context of what's happening in the scriptures now, from the beginning, now reiterated in the New Testament, is this idea of marriage as a complement, male and female. That's the perfect order of things. But then we get a little bit more information that's so critical here when he says this. This mystery, verse 32, is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, it's, it's in Ephesians 5 that we begin to get a greater picture for something that's overarching all of what we're talking about in the same-sex question. That there's a, a greater narrative being written over everything that we can't We can't ignore. Revelation 21. Let's go to the very end of the New Testament. Revelation 21 of verse 2. This is the Apostle John now, and he's seeing this vision of eternity, and he says this, Now I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You, you, again, respectfully, you can't affirm same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships. You can't say that that's okay and maintain the integrity of this picture that we have of the end of time. It's inconsistent. Verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb. 
Well, that's, that's you and me. If we're truly followers of Jesus Christ, that's us. History is culminating in a wedding between opposites. History started with a heterosexual marriage. It ends with a heterosexual marriage between God and his people, the bride. They have to be different. Inasmuch as you and I are different than our God, infinitely different. Infinitely different. So marriage is a picture of that difference and an important one at that. It's all complementary. We can't ignore the imagery. We can't change the imagery. There's intentionality behind God's prescription for faithful, monogamous, heterosexual marriage relationships activity. Because it's a greater, it's, it's a picture of the greater truths that God has for us to believe. And so the issue is essential. It's important. Every marriage between a man and a woman is a living picture showing God's plan to redeem humanity and bring them back into relationship with himself. Every marriage between a man and a woman is the gospel in living color. When that picture is altered, the message is lost. I like what N.T. Wright has said about this. There's a, there's a clip on the resource page, just five minutes long. N.T. Wright is an eminent English scholar and, um, just captures it in just a few minutes when he's asked the question. But he says this, and, and um, this is a quote from the video, so it's somewhat, it's not kind of well-reasoned written material so much as a transcript of what he said. He said, it's, it's not just one or two verses here and there which say this or that. It's an entire narrative so that male plus female marriage is a signpost or a signal about the goodness of the original creation and God's intention for the eventual new heavens and the new earth. Now, Wright goes on to say that when we allow other, the expression he uses is when we allow other configurations of marriage and we get to the place that marriage or sexuality is is merely a convenient social sexual arrangement, then we've all missed the point about what a wonderful mysterious uh, mysterious thing that marriage really is supposed to be. It's something that points directly to God. Now, by the way, the same sex question is in front of us, but, but we, we violate this picture in all kinds of heterosexual ways as well. That's why adultery is as condemned as, as homosexuality is. And fornication is. Sex is not to be treated in any respect or in any of its expressions. It's not to be treated so flippantly. Because our sexuality points to what we believe about our God. In fact, everything we do is theology. Everything. Every decision we make. Every action we take points to what we believe about our God. Not a minute of the day goes by that your life is not saying something about what you actually believe.
Now, I, I feel the weight of all of those truths. Do you feel it? I feel the weight of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm sensing as I go through all of that, some of the implications of it. And the reality is that if we believe all of what we've talked about here today in a very cursory fashion, we've only been able to kind of run over the top of it. Um, then we're going to be following the path where it leads us and where it leads us is not necessarily going to be a desirable place. I think we all like Psalm 119 verse 105. I think I could universally say for everybody, we love this verse. Amen. Okay. God's word, what does it say? Um, I think it's going to go up here on the screen. God's word, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Y'all know that verse? Right. And this is the verse. I think the why we, why we love this one. This is the verse that makes like the greatest wall art. And we're into that kind of posters and, and computer wallpapers and cards. And we, we love this junk. Right. So we love this because it's always done so nicely with a lighthouse or a lantern or or a candle. And it's lighting our path. And but we have it in our mind. Tell me if this is not true of you. We always have it in our mind that the light of God's word, the light to our feet, the lamp to our path, we always believe that it's taking us to a good and safe place. True or false? Yet is it not true sometimes that believing the word of God takes us to a dangerous place? See, we think safety is the highest goal. And God's like, yeah, I'm not really on that program as much as you are. Believing the word of God took Jesus Christ to the cross. Believing the word of God got Jeremiah thrown into a pit and carried off to Egypt. Believing the word of God got Paul imprisoned and beaten and maligned and eventually martyred for his faith. Where do we get off believing that God's word as a lamp to my feet and a light to my path is always taking me to a good place? Okay, every time you see this verse now, you're going to go, Todd has ruined this for me. See, what if it leads me to a place where no one believes what I believe? A possibility of that happening, high. You see, the light of God's word leads us where he wills, not where we will. And if you believe, if you continue to believe what we've just looked at in God's word, then some difficult choices may be ahead for you. We're going to deal with some of those in the next couple of messages, the Lord willing. You see, if you have same-sex attraction, if you identify as gay, and some on our survey are identifying as having attraction or maybe even fully identifying as 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 being gay. And if that's you, and yet you're coming to realize now that perhaps this is sin and that you need to do something about that, then some very difficult choices are ahead of you, painful ones. If you have family members, loved ones who have come out, it's going to mean some painful times ahead, some hard conversations and likely many tears. The lamp unto your feet and the light unto your path. It's going to be a hard, hard road. No matter the personal cost, no matter the pressure to give in, or the path before us, 
our resolve as followers of Jesus Christ must be to believe and act on the word of God without reservation. So that hopefully gives you a good sense of the principal Bible uh, texts that uh, relate to this question. Um, as I said, along the way, there are some um, new resources. I'm going to invite Roger. Why don't you come up right now? He's going to ask a few questions. Can we just take a few minutes to answer some, some questions and then we'll be on our way? But the uh, whenculturesclash.ca website has some new uh, resources. You can also access that through harvestberry.ca under the teaching drop-down menu. Uh, next week, I am going to uh, deal with the question of what to do if I am experiencing same-sex attraction. And uh, so we'll, we'll deal with that next week. But Roger, uh, why don't you, um, you got some questions? Right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Todd, for uh, uh, clarifying really what the Bible says on that. But um, you know, when I carried my chair up here, that, that was kind of like a little bit of a burden. But um, as I know people, and you know people, mm-hmm. who for them, this isn't like just carrying a chair around. It's like carrying their skin around. And so that leads us to one of the questions that people ask is, uh, are people born gay or is it a choice? Yeah, so I'm gonna, we're going to deal with this one in much more detail uh, next week. And I know that that's like a pressing question because that's a, a big thing that's being asked in our society right now. But for, for now, let me, um, can I just uh, do a bit of a Jesus juke on you right now and just answer you the way Jesus would answer questions? With more questions? Okay. I just want to be like Jesus as much as I can. And so <laughs> here's your answer with some questions. Uh, what do you believe? Okay, we're trying to make a distinction. between Is it a choice or am I born this way? So let me, let me ask you this question. Um, what do you believe about the sin nature? Like what's, what's your understanding of the sin nature? Um, what, what does Romans 3.23 say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Okay. What does Romans 5.12 say? Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death passed to all men because all have sinned. Okay, Romans 5. It's been passed down. Sin came from, who was the first sinner? Adam. Okay, Adam and Eve, first sinners. But Adam's sin gets passed down to all of us. So we're trying to ask the question, am I born this way or is it a choice? I'm leading you to an answer, perhaps, through questions. Should we be shocked by the idea of someone being born in sin? No, because we actually believe that. Could we also believe that people might have a certain predisposition towards certain sins? Like I know in my own life, there are certain things that are not tempting at all. There are things that I can triumphantly say I have full victory over that because I'm actually not tempted by it at all. Alcohol is not a problem for me. Going to casinos and gambling is not a problem for me. I have no issue with any of those. I could make a long list of things that are not a problem for me, but I can list some things that I know are a problem for me. And they seem to have been a problem for me from the beginning. Okay, for me, sexual sins are massive. Okay, I was, my parents are right here. I was eight when I brought my first question about sex to my parents. And they both about had a cow when I brought it. <laughs> okay? So they bought me a book to try and answer my question. 
I took the book outside and taught all my eight-year-old friends. <laughs> which did not make any of their parents happy. And who all called my parents right after to say, what are you doing? Okay, so I know, okay, this is an area of temptation for me, but there are some things that are not an area of temptation for me. And so do I have a predisposition towards certain sins? Okay, I'm asking questions. I think most of us would have this, a similar experience to what, to what I have with this. And, and that said, is sin, no matter what it is, still a choice for us? Even though I'm predisposed toward a certain sin, I can still choose to do it or not do it, correct? Okay, that's the premise we're working on throughout this. And again, more about that next week. Wow. Great. Thank you. And uh, you know what? One of the things that we try and do in the church is, is be open and honest. And we've had conversations about my family history and your family history and the things that we uh, struggle with really from the beginning. Right. And, and God's grace in our lives is Amen. so great. But hey, that brings up a, a, this question. Um, okay, we have a high view of Scripture and they have a high view of Scripture. But are those who claim to be Christians and yet affirm same-sex activity or relationships really Christians? Are they really, can they be really Christians? I don't really even know if you're saved. <laughs> I sometimes wonder that. I think there's a lot. <laughs> I think yeah. that, and you don't know if I am. Ultimately, really? the reality is that I have the testimony of the Holy Spirit in me, and I know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. Despite any struggles I might still have and the temptations I face, I know that I'm a believer. But ultimately, I'm not really going to know if Roger is a believer until we're both standing there on the last day. I can look at the fruit I'll coming be there off first of this day. You'll be there yeah. first. Well, you're older, so. <laughs> Chances are. Chances are. Just based on averages. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, but ultimately I'm going to know because, and any of us are going to know because we're all standing there on the last day with Jesus. Amen. I mean, I'm looking forward to that day for sure. And that's how we really know. We can look at the fruitfulness of a person's life and make some determinations. And if you kind of look at Matthew Vine's life, you just go, man, he loves the Bible. He's wrestling it down. He worships Jesus like we do. I mean, I mean he's, he's just in every way except this one thing. And so the question I have, is that enough? Or is that enough to keep him out of heaven? Is he not a believer because of this one sin issue that he's, that he's in error over? And I honestly, I'm not sure I, I really want to answer the question. And the only way I can is to go to the scriptures. And so if I go to somewhere like, for example, first John, okay. First John, I preached this book really, really early on. I think year two here at Harvest, I preached first John and, and uh, it is a hard book to preach. I just heard John MacArthur, who's one of the strongest preachers I know and very black and white in the way he preaches. He was asked the question, what's the hardest section of scripture you've ever taught. And he said, it's first John. And the reason is, and this is funny coming from MacArthur, who's so black and white in his thinking. He said, because John is so black and white. <laughs> really, John MacArthur, that's what you're saying? Because, you know, you're really that. And, but here's, here's what John, John, the apostle John wrote. This is first John um, 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Uh, black and white confession time. How many in this room you would identify as being a follower of Christ, but you would say, I have some sin issue in my life that could be categorized as, um, 
a practice of sinning. It's common enough in my life that it's a practice. Okay. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now, again, if I just look at that verse, I am condemned and done. Unless I look at the full context of the scripture to try and get a bigger picture on all of this. And so then I started thinking about 1 Corinthians 5. I referred to this chapter earlier on. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church to tell them they got to discipline this guy. He's doing something that even people outside the church don't do. It's an incestuous sexual relationship. And and, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, you must Deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might live in the day of the Lord. He's not repentant. He's committing gross sexual sin. He gets put out of the church because of it. He's isolated from the people of God. Yet Paul's instruction gives every indication that the point of the discipline is to wipe him out physically to isolate him in his human life so that on the last day he's standing with you with Jesus. It's crazy. I don't know. Well, good. Thank well, you well, well, let, for that clear answer. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's good. We'll let, we'll let God work it out. How's that? Yeah. We'll let God work it out. Yeah. That's the answer. Well, our time's almost gone, but uh, let me ask you this. Is same-sex sin any different from any other sin? Jesus died for every sin that's been committed in this room. And some of you may think that your sin is less than the sin of same-sex sexual activity, when in fact it's not. It's included in the same sin lists as many other sins that we might even consider minor sins. Gossip, envy, stealing, even little things, cheating on your taxes. I mean, all these sins, lusting after someone, even though you don't consummate it. I mean, the reality is that Jesus Christ went to the cross for all of those sins. There's not a sin that was committed that that the blood of Jesus Christ hasn't cleansed, isn't cleansing. He paid the price for it all. And so your minor sins are, are, are... are just as much nailed to the cross as any of these so-called major sins that we're struggling with. And I love this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, the verses we looked at, one of those lists, verse 11 says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? Amen. Now that said, so no different, no different in the fact that Jesus still had to die for it. But I would just say this about any sexual sin, not just same-sex sexual um, practice, but our sexual ethic has so much parallel to our relationship with God. We've already seen that. And those who have struggled with any sexual sin, if you have anything in your past or you're struggling with something now, you know this, okay? It affects every area of your life and it leaves scar tissue like nothing else. Many of you who are 40, 50, 60 made decisions when you were teenagers and 20-somethings and young people, listen to me. Make decisions for purity before Christ now because the decisions you're making now will dog you for the rest of your earthly life. 
cleansed by the, the blood of Jesus, able to be uh, freed from the guilt and shame and fear of it, but the memories will not leave you. Because sexuality, sexual activity puts an imprint on our hearts. Casual sex of any kind, deviations of any kind, put an imprint on our heart. And in that respect, these are different sins. Because they imprint our spirit and our soul. The consequences and effects can be emotional and physical and affect us spiritually. And so, yes, very different from other sins in, in that way. And, and that's why this series is so important. Because I'm hoping we're seeing beyond the topic, beyond the specific question that we're looking at, to see that God is saying something about himself in this series. That this is a true, even though, it's, again, it's about a particular question, the same-sex question, this is a theology series about our God. And I hope that we can all see that. All right, that's it. It's probably the time we have. Why don't you pray for okay. us? And um, Elders are going to be up here at the front at the end. Access the resource page. Cheryl and I will be out at guest reception. If you're new here to Harvest, you might want to come and stop by and see us, and we'll tell you we're not always like this. <laughs> All right, why don't Let's you pray, pray for us? Father, thank you that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it's in his name that we have prayed here and that we worship here. And uh, we thank you that uh, if we sin, um, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, that's what we want to hang on to today. We want to hang on to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And in his name we pray. Amen.